Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SoCal Summer Swing Out Podcast. The music you are currently listening to is called Dances in the Night by Papa D, a fellow swing dancer, musician, artist, and friend. You can find all links for streaming, socials, and videos down below. Make sure to go and support him. Now let's get into the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the SoCal Summer Swing Out Podcast. My name is Andre, and I am joined by a very special guest today. As you saw uh, in the past couple stories, we are now interviewing uh, one of the dancers who is actually homeless for a while. So it is my pleasure for you all to meet me. Uh, it, it was me, guys. I was I was a homeless dancer for a while, and I know that you all might be hearing this. You may be surprised, thinking, "What? Why? I saw you out dancing, and you're traveling a ton. When did this happen?" And some of you who know me might have so many questions, including the very fair question of, "Why didn't you tell me? And what could I have done to help?" Um, but yes, it is true. I was homeless. I was the homeless dancer, and uh, I'm going to be talking about that experience, that journey that I had, as well as answering the majority of the questions that uh, some of you may have, as well as going to explain some very specific concepts that I think would be relatable to some of you who are either experiencing difficulty or maybe experiencing the same thing. Maybe you're in the middle of being homeless and maybe you're getting close to that point, or maybe there's just some difficulty that you, that is affecting your ability to dance. And I'm not going to lie. This is this was a scary topic for me to bring up, um, both personally as well as uh, professionally, because it's very vulnerable. It's a very vulnerable place to be, a vulnerable place to uh, essentially express. So if I pause at any point here, um, that'll be why. But I want to make this raw. I want to make this real. I don't want to cut and edit it. This is going to be like any other podcast, except I'm telling you a bit of my story of how I was homeless, how that affected my dancing, and how I learned something very, very special during that time about dance and about what dancing means to me as a person. So with that being said, um, a couple things. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'll explain all of that more in depth at the end, but it has to do with swing dancing being something that is can be considered a privilege, something that needs money and sometimes an able body. It requires a lot of foundational things of people who have their quote unquote shit together in order to do and how that plays a part in just where our swing scene is at now and how we can be more welcoming to others. Now, all of that will be explained at the end, but As you're listening to the podcast, I want to start off with two things first. Number one, I am okay now. I'm good now. It was something that happened in the recent past, and it was something that I went through, but now I'm in a far better place. I have a reliable place. I have the right mindset. Everything is more uh, in a good place right now. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing I wanted to say is as you listen to this podcast, I highly encourage you to approach it like it's a story, as in I'm telling you a story of my life, as opposed to approaching it with solutions. So something that I've learned is 
when I tell people something difficult that happens in my life, because they care, they immediately go into solution where they're like, oh, have you done this? You want to do this? Oh, you should do that, do that, do that. And they go into straight up advice mode. Okay. And sometimes that's not helpful. Sometimes that's not needed. And that's not what's required in that moment. Maybe in that moment, that person just needs to be heard. They need to feel cared for and they need to feel like they're not alone. And that will get them into a far better headspace to where they can have the choice to say, hey, I need some advice. Past podcasts, I think you heard Amy and I talking about how anytime anyone is struggling with something or when they're expressing their difficulty with something, we tend to ask, the we, as in Amy and I have gotten into the habit of asking the question, do you want me to just listen, offer perspective or advice? I like that a lot because it gives that person the uh, autonomy and the agency to decide what they want. Now, there are times where that person won't know what they want or what they need, and that's valid too. And so saying, I don't know, is also fair. In which case, what I've, what has helped me in the past, what other people have done for me in the past, they said, we don't have to do or say anything. I'm just going to sit next to you and stand by you. This is the way I'll show you support. So that's what I'm asking for this podcast is I'm asking that you all keep an open mind and you think of this as a story and not as a, oh, he should have done that. He should have done that, which also adds to the point when you see me in person, I don't want you to treat me any differently. Chances are someone you know has also experienced this. After doing so much research on homelessness, there is a high chance that someone who was close to you was homeless at some point and they just didn't tell you, but you treated them the same. So if you see me in person, you can you can treat me the same as you would have in any other scenario. If you want to talk about the homelessness piece, you can ask me and say, hey, would you, are you open to talking about this homelessness piece? And if I have the bandwidth, I'll say, yeah, let's do it. Or I'll say, uh, probably not today, maybe another time, or probably not in this moment. But I just wanted to put those two things out there so you had a foundation of how to approach this podcast. Because this can be... This can be pretty heavy and pretty vulnerable. I'm going to try to keep it light, but I want to also state the facts and how it affected my dance journey in such a powerful, powerful way, as well as the people that affected me. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the interview. What I have here is I have a bank of questions that I think would be most relevant to go through. So first question is, when did this homelessness happen? Or rather, when did it happen and what do you consider homeless? What happened to me was I lost my apartment and uh, I later lost my car. And when you don't have a car in SoCal, that can really make it difficult to get ahead. And so those are two very difficult points that uh, I had to navigate through. But that's what I consider homeless is not having a consistent place at a safe place where you can sleep and know that you go back there every night. So you're not wondering, oh, where do I sleep uh, tonight or where do I sleep tomorrow night or whatnot, right? You have that consistent place. I also consider sleeping in your car as homeless because that is something that happened to me for a while. We'll get to that piece. But the question was, when did the homelessness thing happen? So I was homeless or getting into that homelessness stage between March of 2023 and August of 2023. So this is recent. As of today, it's October 3rd. 
when I'm recording this. So I was about five months or so when I was homeless. What happened was, um, we'll get into the second question, which is how did you become homeless? It's a complicated scenario, but in short, it was a combination of the economy at the time when people were losing their jobs. It was a combination of my mental health at the time. I was pretty darn depressed and unable to do well in my job. And so I opted to say, okay, let me just try my personal business thing. And so I tried to, to start my own business, which did not go well. And when I look back, I realized, oh, I see the steps that I had missed. And um, all of that combined kind of got me to a place where, to put it bluntly, I wasn't making any money and I didn't have any money. I lived off of my savings and my cards for a while. And it became came to a point where that wasn't sustainable or smart anymore. And so instead of getting evicted from my apartment, I actually worked it out with my landlord and I said, hey, um, I don't want to get an eviction on my record. And I also want you to have a room that you can rent out to other people. So I'll just pack up all my stuff and then head out. And then you can have this place. And that was at the end. That was at the end of March. And it was at that point that I realized, oh, I am now going to be homeless. I am now going to be sleepy in my car. And at the time, I still had a very reliable car. Um, and it was it was great because great. I'm putting air quotes up. It was great because I had something reliable, at least one reliable consistency in my life, which was my car, knowing that I was able to get places and I was able to make money. Making money means I was trying, I tried to do Uber Eats. I tried to do DoorDash and Uber and all that. All of them had like a long queue of people before they were accepting someone. So my job became donating plasma. I'll talk about that and how that affected minor swing for me later on. So when did it happen? Between March and August. And the timeline was that I became like fully homeless sleeping in my car in April. And then between April and May, if you ever interacted with me or saw me between April and May, I was I was homeless. And uh, that's why some of you didn't see my car in the back of a tunnel because I parked far away because I didn't want people to see like my bedding and all my covers and all that. Like, to be honest, it was comfortable. I slept fine in my car. And I'll talk about that here in a little bit. that here in a little bit. Um, but in June, that's when I lost my car because my car um, got repossessed. It is very embarrassing to say that out loud to a bunch of people listening, but that was the scenario at the time. And so I, I got woken up to someone hooking up to my car. I had to take all of my stuff out and put it on the sidewalk. And it was, it was a day. It was a crazy day because I literally said, okay, I am now officially homeless. I have nowhere to go. I have no one to call because I didn't tell anyone at that time. During this entire time, I hadn't told anyone. Well, I told one person, but I'll talk about that here in a bit. And so I pulled out my Trump card and I called my sister and I said, hey, this is what's happening. She got me into a better place. She helped me like uh, find uh, a place to stay and I was able to get rides from people and stuff. Um, and so that was around June. And then we're going to get into June and July because in June, that was my birthday month. 
if you're listening to this and you came out with me on my birthday out to like K-Town and whatnot, like I'm so grateful for you all because at that time, I think I had $3 in my bank account and my friends were very generous. They didn't let me pay for a single thing. So anytime we went out and I have to say like that, that birthday of this past year, birthday when I was homeless and didn't have any money and going out with my friends and having that really, really great time. That was that was super uplifting, realizing oh, I have good people in my life. And it was just, it was a powerful reminder of how people play a vital part in our lives as a whole. And the crazy part, I met all of these people through swing dancing. We were not doing a swing dance related thing. We were going out to do karaoke and get food and do non-swing dance dancing. And I have to say that that's such a powerful point because we're connected by this thing that we love, but we are further connected by the experiences outside of that thing that we love. And that's what brings me to the question of how did I, how did I get out of it? And who are the people involved? Well, obviously, I think people already know that Amy and her family played a huge part in this. So when I talk about Amy, I'm talking about Amy, my dance partner, Amy. And she was the first person I told. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't tell my sister. I didn't tell anyone. And it was when I was down visiting Amy because we had a practice. We were going to do something. And we were in her kitchen and we were just talking. And I was like, Amy, I have, I think I have to tell you something. And she was like, all right. I asked, do you have bandwidth for something potentially heavy? And she's like, yeah, fam, let's hear it. And um, I told her, I was like, I have been sleeping in my car since April. And like her face was, she she didn't show like a negative judgmental emotion. Her face was one of straight up worry. She said, fam. And then we had a talk. She was not happy with me. In her own Amy way, she was upset that I didn't tell her. And she she didn't reprimand me. She wasn't mean. She was very kind and very loving and very affectionate and she straight up like just said hey i care about you what do you need how can i help and i i now when i think back to it i get like slightly emotional because amy amy and i met two years ago and we started becoming dance partners two years ago and now our friendship and our 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 siblinghood is deeper than ever because we we connected over dance. That was the thing that we connected over, but we're so similar in so many, so many ways, which is why like we consider each other brother and sister. I call her Bunso, she calls me Kuya, which is little sister and older brother in Tagalog. And because we have so many similarities in just personality and how we approach life. And we even showed up to dances wearing the same clothes without talk, same color schemes without talking about it. There were just so many similarities that we just said, we have to be related like way down the line, we, which is why I think that she and I are work so well together as a dance partnership and why she felt comfortable telling me this. She felt comfortable saying, Andre, people care about you. People really love you. You've given so much to this community and if someone were in that situ the situation that you are in now, you would do whatever is in your power to help. We later talked about how I, me not telling the people I cared about was 
sort of disrespectful in a way. Now, keep in mind, when someone's going through something, they don't owe anyone anything. They don't owe anyone, like, they don't need to tell someone that they're going through hardship. They don't need to be, to share their difficulty, like the way I'm doing right now. At the same time, the way I see it is, I made the decision for my friends consciously because I thought all my friends are going through a really tough time now or things are really difficult for them or they're these hardships here, here, here. They all have their own shit. And so I got myself here. I need to get myself out is what I thought. But by me keeping it to myself and not telling the people that I cared about what was going on, I was robbing them of their choice. I was not letting them decide whether they could help me or not, or if they wanted to or not. Instead, I just made the decision for them. Another reason why I'm telling you about all of this is there's another friend of mine who I got dinner with recently, and his name is his name is Keegan. And he and I have been meaning to get dinner for a long time. And so this was a really, really great opportunity. And Keegan is a wealth of emotional and psychological knowledge because he does this as a profession and he's very, he's very, very, he's very emotionally mature. And he said something along the same lines. He shared, he shared a lot of um, really great insight to me that made me realize I need to share this with other people because it's powerful. And in short, th those are some of the big reasons why I wanted to, to at least bring this up and talk about it because it does affect um my dancing it did affect my dancing so you might another question might be asking was well what role did dancing play and how did it affect it well for one i think it's pretty obvious to say that swing dancing costs money even more so if you're deep into it like some of us are where you have to travel take flights and book a hotel room or airbnb you you have to spend so much money in order to do this dance, at least if you want to like really compete and stuff. But I'll even say in this sense, like 15, 10 to $15, it was, it was a stretch. It was a stretch for me at times. And anyone can argue, well, if you're not doing well financially, or if you're not in a good place, well, then you shouldn't be dancing. And that was a problem for me because the, one of the reasons why I got into this place was because I had such a huge sense of loneliness and I was so depressed because I, of a, of a lot of things, but one of the things that was a really big and true form of therapy was dance. It doesn't replace therapy. I didn't have money for therapy, but it was the closest thing that I could get to, to feel most like myself as opposed to feel outside. And it was hard because when between April and July, I couldn't dance as much as I wanted to. Like, yeah, when I was donating plasma, I would make about almost like $130 a week. And that would pay for my gas when I had my car, as well as, um, as, well as the food. Oh, the food piece. Here's a light pit a light tone. So Daniel Roberts, he actually told me about Knott's Berry Farm and how if you get a pass, if you go to Knott's Berry Farm, you can eat like a giant meal there twice a day, one every four hours. Those are giant meals. And so food wise, I had Knott's Berry Farm and I was there almost every day 
which is why I was able to still like, I didn't have to worry about food. But the problem was after I lost my car, I couldn't get to the plasma donation center and I couldn't get to Knott's Berry Farm without a ride. And so that's when in June, that's when things got complicated. But we'll talk more about that. Back to the dancing bit. So how homelessness affected my dancing was A, obviously I couldn't dance as much. And B, I couldn't see my friends as much because I just couldn't get to the place or maybe I didn't have enough gas money or maybe I didn't have enough money to pay for the dance. And I remember once or twice, I uh, I, I remember thinking, okay, I have $20. So what what can I do? And I remember that day I was like, I really need to dance because I had a terrible day and I really needed to see my friends. And so I paid the $15 and had $5 left over, which made me realize something. I ask myself now, how many dancers in our scene show up to a dance and they're literally like giving the majority of their money to that dance? You may not be like as dire as where I was, where I only had $5 left, but that concept of some dancers walking into a place and saying, thinking, I need this. I need to dance. I need to, I need to feel something apart from like this depression and sadness that I feel like I need this right now. And they're willing to pay a ton of money to them for that. It was just eye opening to me. I spoke to some people later and there are people like that. There are people who show up to a dance without, with, without very much and they really want to be there and feel included which is why i feel like it's somehow somewhat a calling for me and for anyone who organizes an event or anyone who has a dance to try and make it as wonderful as possible and as welcoming as possible because it no longer just becomes ten dollars for me it becomes someone really needs this. And I feel like that's part of the unspoken magic and spirit of Lindy Hop that we experience is every time we go out, we have this visceral excitement when we hear the music, when we see the people, when we see people smiling, when we're seeing people who just start swing dancing, getting the bug, when we see people swing out really hard with that ginormous like spirit and energy, like that really fills us up. And I feel like there's a magic to that, that, I feel as people who are organizing or helping at a dance, I almost feel like we owe it to ourselves and others to keep that magic and keep that spirit alive. If we think back to how swing dancing started all the way at the beginning and how they would save um, like the sense, like they would save the money that they would make all week just to go out dancing at the Savoy. It, it was, it's, it's just a, a huge moment to reflect on for me, recognizing that that exists. Now that's in regards to the finances of Lindy Hop and how money affects it. Let me tell you a story about how that whole situation was huge for me because back in March of 2023, the Atomic had a, an event called Minor Swing and that minor swing, it was a combination. Your first out, if you made finals, was solo jazz. Your second out was partnered. And so I was doing this competition with Corinne, and I was supposed to go and pay for our comp tickets. Now, at the time, 
I was so close to being homeless and I still didn't have enough money to cover it. And I was thinking, I woke up that morning thinking, all right, I need to cough up $50 right now in order to pay for this. So what can I sell? What can I do? And I remembered I can donate plasma because when you're in international state, you can't donate plasma because then that's a form of income and the government knocks you or whatever. But now um, I was able to donate. And so I went to a place. I was like, hey, I'm here to donate. They went through pay with like, sorry, you can't because your paperwork is tied with one in Indiana. And I was like, damn, all right, well, is there another place? And I got really discouraged. But then they said, yeah, you can go to this place. I went same day. They took uh, my plasma which if you don't know what donating plasma is, it's where they essentially give you an IV and then they take some of your blood and then put it back in and they just take the plasma out. And the first times that you donate, you get like $115 or so. So I walked out of there with $115. First place I went to was Atomic where I paid for my evening dance ticket as well as Corinne and my, um, and my like competition tickets. So that video that you see Corinne and I dancing in, like, uh, that was a time when I was this close to being homeless and when I had literally, I had literally bled for the dance, which is nuts to me. Like I bled for the dance and it was great. I had a great time. It was exactly what I needed. Corinne and I ended up getting third, which is fantastic because that <laughs> it's just not that like where you rank in a competition means anything, but it meant a lot to me because I put my body and soul to this dance. Now, was that a wise decision? Should I have just pulled out? Maybe. I know that I'm grateful for it because it reminded me of the power of a dollar. It reminded me of the strength of being financially secure. And this also plays a part because when I lost my car, I couldn't donate plasma anymore because I couldn't get there. I couldn't walk there. And this was right around the May timeframe, right? This was at the end of May when I lost my car. And it was at the beginning of June. Up until that point, I had been interviewing like crazy, trying to get like a full-time job that I could work to like essentially solve all my problems. The story is that if I had gotten a job, I would have been able to solve 90% of my problems right then and there, which is eventually what happened. I got an offer, but they said, you have to do a drug test first. And I was like, cool, that's fine. The homelessness thing, it wasn't due to substance abuse or anything like that. Um, and so I wasn't worried about that at all. The problem was getting to the testing center. So one day I ended up walking 10 miles to go and get my um, to go and get my go and get my drug test done, and then during that time, I also was able to walk by the plasma donation center and I donated plasma. All like I walked those ten miles. Here's where it's eye opening and why it, why it made an impact. People doing that is normal in Madagascar. It's normal back home in Cameroon and Kenya. There are kids who do that on a daily basis, one way, just to get to school. And I remember my feet hurt so much after those 10 miles thinking, oh man, that that that's a lot. I know that some people joke that their parents are like, when I was your age, I had to cross, climb mountains and cross rivers in order to get to school, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it's, it's a meme and it's a joke, but some of it is rooted in truth. Some of it is truly rooted in truth. I have 
family members, aunts and uncles, where they sell coal or they used to sell coal and they would walk miles and miles to get the coal and bring it back for a meager amount of money. And it really put my heart into perspective, recognizing that money is such a privilege to have because without money, how are you going to swing dance? How are you going to pay for the evening dance or pay for lessons or pay for events without money? Like that's not possible. And it made me realize that's a quote unquote barrier to entry. There is a podcast that uh, Tina, the organizer for um, ILHC did um, with Ryan Swift. She said something really cool. She said she would love to have an event where all the dancers are able to attend for free. For free. Can you imagine that? That would be incredible. And that's, that's, that is a dream because then imagine the wealth of cultures and people and the, the different experiences that people could have if a dance was completely free. Obviously we live in a capitalist society and that, that model is a dream and it won't, it's not, it's not fully sustainable yet. It's, I think that it's a powerful thing to aspire to. I'm still trying to grapple with that and how I want that to be expressed in my own life. But it's, that was very, very eye-opening to see like how much it pays, <laughs> how much it pays to have your shit together and have all your money in place and not be homeless and then be able to dance. Like that combination is just, that, that combination is just a lot. Now, there are obviously challenges to that. And so one of the questions I have here is, what were some of the biggest challenges that you face when you're homeless? Well, for one, when I had my car, I actually got really good at finding out where to sleep. If you're homeless right now, there are a bunch of Reddit forums out there um, that will help you that'll help you kind of recognize um, where you can sleep and where you can't sleep. Now, I'm not a, I'm I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about where you can or can't sleep. But if that is something that you're, you need assistance or help with or need ideas, um, message me. Send me a quick message and I'll let you know. But find a place to sleep. Not having a car in SoCal is so freaking hard because the public transportation is doable, but it takes forever. And it's just not as feasible. Obviously, not having a consistent income was difficult. It did get so much easier when I did have consistent income. And um, two big things that I would say I wanted to touch more on was not being able to see my friends. I was so worried when I wasn't able to see my friends because I thought, oh, man, like friendships are cultivated over time and friendships are built the more consistently they see you. And I was afraid that, like, if I didn't show up, well, then I would my friends would forget me. My friends wouldn't care about me. And I, I realized that was just me in my own head, but that's what kind of happens when there are a lot of things going on in your life, when you don't have the stability and the privilege of being able to know where you, where you're going to stay that night. And there is a huge element of shame and embarrassment. So I have a really strong, um, a, a really strong guilt and shame complex. I grew up as a Christian and a missionary kid my entire life. 
So the concept of lying or cheating or all this, all these things that are human temptations, when I do them, I feel so much shame and guilt. And it's, it's like gnawing at me. But I didn't realize that the shame and guilt also transferred to your inability to live up to your full potential. Because I was, I was homeless at the time and I was thinking, I have an MBA, I have a bachelor's degree, like I work in the cybersecurity industry and I'm smart and how, how did I get here? And I looked at all these things and I, I was so embarrassed because I was thinking, how, how, how could I be in this position when before I was living just a great life with a nice apartment and I was, I was doing great. And it, it made me realize that it's all kind of a farce. My dad told me when I was a kid, I'd see all these kids playing outside and all this stuff. And I'd be like, I want to go play with them. And he would say, Andre, like they're all playing out there because they all completed their homework already. They did all their chores and they're out there able to be out there because they essentially have their shit together. And so I needed to get my shit together so I could join that elite group. And I feel like that was in my mind. It transferred into my head that everyone I see has their shit together. Everyone who's out dancing, who's traveling, who's doing all this cool stuff, they all have their shit together. And some of them do. A majority of them do not. They, they may have their shit together financially, but maybe they don't have their shit together emotionally. Maybe they don't have their shit together uh, physically. As in, maybe they aren't as, uh, they don't have as much cardio as they would like. They don't have as much muscle as they should for their job or whatever, or what have you. It, it Like, what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to say is that there was a lot of shame and embarrassment that I had about being homeless. And in the end, I recognized that that was a lot of me projecting my own insecurities on others. And that was a huge blocker to me not telling anyone what happened. And I slowly started opening up to people after I talked to Amy about it. And this is where we go back to the timeline, the other people that really had a positive impact. When I lost my apartment, I had a bunch of stuff, like including my one suitcase that I brought to America in 2009. That suitcase right now is sitting in uh, Blake's garage because Blake and Keegan, after I told them what was going on, they were kind enough to let me put my stuff there because I, I lived with them for a while. And then I have to really say thank you to other people such as like Olivia, who let me put a bunch of stuff in her storage as well as Daniel who hang on, hang, hung on to some uh, suitcases for me. And I wouldn't have been able to sleep in my car if it weren't for them to be able to do that. So I could have space to actually like lie down in the back. But I was, I was very, very lucky that they were willing and open to uh, doing that for me. And that was really huge because that's when I lost my apartment. Now, Amy, Amy plays a huge part in me getting out of it because not only did she, not only did she like um, let me stay at her place or talk to her family and made a case for me because what ended up happening is uh, timeline wise, I know I'm like skipping through this, um, but in June, well, yeah, let's step, let's step back. Yeah. In June, I was staying with Amy for a while and then I had bought, I had bought uh, plane tickets and booked a room 
in Cancun for a friend's wedding. Now, I wasn't completely like out of my mind because when I had a sense that I might get homeless, I had some important things I really wanted to make, which was my best friend's wedding in Cancun. So what I did was I paid for the flight, the hotel, the uh, rides there and back. I did all of that ahead of time. That way, when I was in Cancun, I kid you not, I did not spend a single dollar. I was there for an entire weekend, didn't spend a single dollar because it was a an uh, all-inclusive resort, as well as the fact that I had planned way ahead. Same, it was kind of similar to like the not very farm thing. So I that at least proved that I wasn't completely unaware and I was at least smart enough to do that. So that was nice. But when I came back, just I was staying with Amy for a little bit. When I and she was nice enough to like drive me to the airport and everything. And God, she is she is phenomenal, bro. Like legit. And after that, um, I came back. I told two of my other friends what was going on. And so when I came back, they picked me up from the airport. I was staying with them for the night. I was stressing. I was stressing. I was like, all right, where am I going to stay tomorrow? Who who can I who can I reach out to without like stepping on their toes or uh, like making things difficult? Because I had another friend named Joanna. She was so sweet. Joanna was also like, oh, you can stay at my place whenever, Andre. And so many people open up their homes to me later on that I was like, man, I I I didn't have to live this difficult life. Like people were willing to help me. So my friends, their names are Maggie and Jose. They were so sweet. It just so happened that they were moving apartments. They were going from one apartment to the other. And it was in a span of two or three weeks. And they had a lease from at both places. So like, hey, do you want to just stay with us? Well, they didn't say, do you want to? They're like, you're staying with us. Because they knew what was going on. And it was such a relief. Because then I knew that for three weeks, I had a place to stay. I had a home. And it was great. Obviously, I helped out as much as I could with the move and it was just really nice to be able to hang out with them all the time. Um, and it was just such, it was so nice to have people that cared about you that much to be able to offer up your home, like their home like that to you. And I obviously helped them move and whatnot. And that was, that was awesome. It's now a tradition that every time we move, like I'm the first person who helps them and we put cabinetry together while having some wine. So it ended up being like a really great experience. And at the end of June, that was after I came back from Cancun. At the end of June, um, I actually got accepted to move into a homeless shelter. So one of my friends, um, her name's Nastasia. She was kind enough to let me stay at her place. And I told her she knew everything that was going on. And she's a dear friend. She, she was the one who dropped me off at that homeless shelter. And at that homeless shelter, it's called the SHIP program. There are people that are helping people who, they're, they're an organization, a church organization that helps people get back on their feet after three months, but you have to follow very rigorous rules. For example, every day you have to leave the house by 6 a.m. And every day you have to come back to the house by 6 p.m. You have to have dinner with the people in that house as well as um, the, uh, the chaperones. Just make sure you're not doing anything dodgy and you have to be in bed by 10 p.m. Obviously, the in bed by 10 p.m. thing, that was hard for me because I was like, man, now I can't go dancing. I definitely can't go to Lindigoo because the place we're staying at was an OC. But I thought, well, I, I can at least go for an hour. And so there were times where I would go to um, Atomic just for an hour. Now, during that time as well, it was kind of nuts because 
I had gotten my job. Remember that job where I did the drug test for? I got it. I got that job. The first paycheck I got went to solving 90% of my problems. And it was such a relief. It was such a relief when I realized, oh man, 90% of my problems are gone. And now I just need to focus on like getting back to a good place, which I ended up doing. And during that time, I was able to get a motorcycle to be able to get around, which was amazing. And, and this was still in July, mind you. So this was all in July. The entire month of July, I stayed in this homeless shelter and I didn't dance. I didn't see my friends. I was still somewhat homeless because I didn't have a dedicated place to go during the day. So I would go to libraries, go to Starbucks, or I'll go like co-work with some friends. So I had a I had a place to sleep for the night. And that was important. During the day, I was still trying to navigate my life and trying to figure out how I can get to a more solidified place. And so during that time, um, Amy, Amy went above and beyond again. Not only she did so much more than what I'm talking about. If I were to talk about everything that she's done for me, like it would take the entire podcast episode, but this wonderful human, like we talked with her family and her family said, Hey, we can, we can have you stay with us. Now, obviously I paid rent and, and whatnot, but it was such a huge, a huge weight off my shoulders. Even the first day I stayed in Amy, in Amy's house with her uh, sister and brother-in-law, which that they're phenomenal humans. Like I, I miss them a lot. Um, But during that entire time, I remember there was a moment where I took a picture of the bed and I said, this is, this is my bed. Like I have, I have a place to stay and I feel safe here. I feel wanted and cared for. And I feel no judgment. I feel no, like, uh, no, no negative emotions or embarrassment. Like I feel, I feel at home here. Same thing happened when I moved into her parents' house and I realized wow, I have a home, I have a bed, I have a place. And I feel like sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that we have a home and a place, especially in the swing dance scene. Now, this may sound woo-woo, but when I was thinking about me feeling at home in Amy's place and when I got a home, it related so much to the moments where I felt so connected and so together with my swing dance scene. Yes, it happens when we're swing dancing, but it happens the most when we're not. It happens the most when we're not. It's when it's, It typically happens when we're all going out to eat or when we're all hanging out outside of dancing. Because dancing, you're focused on you, you're partnering the music, and you're with your friends, and you're on there, and that's what's beautiful, absolutely beautiful but I feel so at home and I get so emotional sometimes when I'm like doing something that typically revolves around food. Um, and I feel so like, I feel like we're all together in this. We're all sharing this moment together. This moment will go and we may not have a moment like this in the future, but that's a moment when you feel at home. And I liken that feeling of being at home when I was at Amy and our parents' place to being at home with my dancing, with my people with people that I know are good people that care about me, people that I can really lean on during difficult times. Now, there are a lot of people 
like that. For me, one of the questions I have here, who are the people that helped you and how did they help? Well, there was obviously Amy and her family. That's Amy, Ate, Skyler, Auntie, Uncle, Nene, all of them. And then by extension, there's also Jet and Ryan. Now, I had talked about Jet and Ryan on the Jazz Babies podcast. If you hadn't listened to that, I'd highly encourage you to go check it out because those two are good guys. And I felt very, very welcome and supported by all of them. Maggie and Jose, they let me stay with them for three weeks. They were kind enough to do that. And there are very few people that I know who would open up their home like that to someone. Now, granted, Maggie and I have known each other for over a decade. And so um, we were close. And I I deeply feel like we have a really strong friendship. Um, but I was thankful to her because they offered me that place. Blake and Keegan and Daniel and Olivia, um, anyone and Natasha and anyone who let me sleep on their couch or gave me or like held on to my stuff. That was huge. And I also had family members. So like my sister, my biological sister who helped me as well. And that, I obviously can't forget the ship program because that program was very instrumental in me bouncing back. Now, if you'll notice, all the people that I mentioned are dance people, um, save for like some, but the majority of them are dance people. And I feel like when we're interacting with people in the swing dance world, it may seem quote unquote superficial or just like a, oh, we're here in our happy place and this is our happy place that we go to just be happy. And people don't see the dark side of other people's lives. Like no one, no one knew when they were dancing with me that I was that I was homeless. They didn't know that I was going through difficult times because I didn't tell them, one, I'm not going to be swing dancing with my friend and be like, ha I'm homeless. Cause that, that's just not social grace. That that's time. The time and place wouldn't be right. Right. But because we share that swing dance commonality that allows us to take a step further in those friendships and relationships, I recognize there's more to us than just being dancers. We we may like the same video game, we may like the same music, new movie genre, or what have you, but there are other elements of connection that I know some people in our swing dancing feel. There are people in the swing dancing who are purely in it just for swing dancing, and they don't want to have any other friendships because they may have friendships outside of that. They're happy with how those friendships are. That's not the case for me, and I know that's not the case for a lot of people that I'm close to, because dancing is a connection form. But we know each other better through dancing who we are as people so we feel more connected to them in the long run which is where these type of relationships can happen the relationships where you feel connected to someone where you feel you can be honest and open with someone about how how you're doing and what difficulties you're facing and the most important if you need help this is kind of where I go into the topic of um, why I'm telling you all this, because I'm being very open and vulnerable and it's not, it's not my, my favorite because believe it or not, I, I am a pretty private person, but my entire goal with this podcast is to create community and open up conversations that I feel like need to be had. 
And in swing dancing, I feel like that's where we go for a happy place. But I also feel like that can be a source of support. Those people don't just have to be swing dance friends. They have to be, they, they can also be people that help you in your personal life. Because back to the original point, um, unless we have our financial life in place and in a good spot, well, then dancing becomes difficult because it does require money. And at the same time, if we're not able to get ourselves in that good spot, it's very difficult to do alone and we do need support. But that requires us to recognize that we need support. That requires us to accept that we need support. And in my case, I, I, some could say that I waited too long to ask for support or ask for help because I was worried that people are all working on their own shit and they need time to work on their own shit. This was all happening between, um, in like July, August, all that time frame. But during that time, right before the weekend before school started, if you're listening to this and you're a teacher, you know how hectic it can be right before, right before like school starts because you have to plan, you have to set up your classroom, all this kind of stuff. And somehow Amy found the time and energy to organize our friends to throw me a surprise birthday party in the months where she was preparing for school and preparing for school is stressful. She used her precious time, her precious summer time during the summer to, to, to prepare that for me. Like there was in San Diego, there was, there was, she had like a, a poster. She brought people, they organized food and a cake and like that type of selflessness and thoughtfulness and care is absolutely insane. I do have to say that like one of the people that I leaned on quite heavily for my emotional support. Now I didn't, I didn't use him as a therapist as in I didn't like just dump everything on him. But anytime I had like a really difficult thought about myself or who I am, or maybe I was struggling with something. I always knew that I could lean on this guy for support. And it was Mishu. Like Mishu is an engineer. And so he's very solution oriented, but he's also one of the most, um, I would say wise and thought provoking and has done the work within himself to be able to respond things well. And there are times where I called him and I was like, man, I'm, I'm not doing so hot. Like this thing happened and he would like talk me through it. He would, he would listen. And I think that that's a skill that a lot of people, a lot of people can really benefit from asking questions and listening. I talked a lot about how I didn't tell anyone that I was struggling. I kept that to myself. I wasn't, I didn't go out of my way to like make people realize what I was going through. At the same time, there were times where I wished, I wished someone would say, Hey, how are you? Not, not like the whole, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, what's up, bro? How are you? Blah, blah, blah. But like someone really just said, hey, how are you doing? Or 
how's your heart? You know? And I really wish someone would have asked me that because I feel like that would have given me the permission to feel like, oh, they are truly asking how I'm doing and they might be ready for the real answer. And so I remember, I think, I think it was someone at Atomic asked me, very sincere, very sincere, like, hey, how are you doing? And I, at the time, I wasn't doing great, but I was, I was too embarrassed. I was like, um, I'm all right. You know, I just said, I'm all right. Because that was the truth. And it's true. I, I, it could have been worse. I feel like that was an opportunity for me to delve deeper into that friendship. But I skipped it because I was too embarrassed about what was going through my life. Now, I know that this may have jumped a bunch of different places and maybe like uh, seem slightly confusing. That's what happens when you record a raw podcast without any editing. But I at least wanted to highlight several points. So my hope is by hearing my story and seeing my situation and how I had the support of others in order to get out of it, that maybe someone who's listening to this podcast or someone you know may be struggling. And maybe you're in this situation too where you you are getting close to homeless or maybe you you are homeless and you are sleeping in a car you haven't told anyone and you're trying to go through this all by yourself and um i my hope is that hearing my story you'll hear how much of a positive impact it has to recognize you need help and being open to asking for help and I know that everyone's different. Like I, I, I consider myself very, very lucky that I have the friends that I do, that my friendships were able to go deeper than just social dancing and swing dancing, that my friendships are so much more than that. And um, that, that, that is something that I recognize. I also recognize that it would be easier, your your life and your situation could be easier if you didn't have to go through it alone. Maybe there's someone out there who if you say, hey, I'm struggling and I need help, maybe they don't have the resources or bandwidth to be able to help, but they may have, they may have, they may know someone else who does. I was talking to one of my friends, Bianca, about this whole situation. Bianca has been so sweet and so, so kind in uh, my entire situation. She is someone who is loyal to the core, as in she, if you tell her, hey, I need help, she will drop what she's doing no matter how she's feeling and help you. And th- there are people like Bianca out there. And there there are people like Bianca who will do whatever they can for even someone who just said one nice thing to them, right? There are people out there. And I feel like in the swing dance world, especially because of the dance that we do and the nature of the dance, there are kind people out there. And my hope is that if you take anything away from this entire this entire episode, 
is that you hear me when I say that you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to recognize that this is a difficult part in your life. But this moment is not your life. This is a moment in your life, which means that it too shall pass. You don't have to do that alone. You can ask for help the way I wish I had before. But I'm in a better place now. So in conclusion, let's start wrapping it up. I do want to reemphasize that if you're listening to this podcast right now and you have some strong emotions, whether that's um, being upset that I didn't tell you or maybe you feel you feel you relate to this podcast a lot that maybe you're in that difficult place like um i definitely hear you and i understand where you're coming from like i said at the beginning i asked you to have an open mind right this is just for the people who may who i have that personal relationship where they feel like uh, they feel slighted that i didn't tell them i hope that you understand where i was coming from and why i didn't tell you and why i kept it to myself i definitely recognize that that's something i um I didn't have to do. I didn't have to tell anyone. I didn't owe it to anyone. At the same time, I personally think myself, it would have been better for me in my entire situation. And it would have been more respectful for me to tell people so that they could have the choice of what to do. Whether that thinking is flawed or not, it's my experience. And that's how I currently feel. I'm probably still going to unpack that for several years, given the difficulty that was homelessness. Um, I will also I'll also say that uh, if you do see me in public or if you do interact with me, it's you don't have to feel sorry for me. You don't have to give me pity and you don't have to um, vocalize or interact with me in a way that's different than you would have if you hadn't heard this podcast. Right. If you do want to talk about it, you can tell you can ask me if I'm open to it. Um, that whole question about asking and listening, asking questions and listening, as opposed to doing, just going straight for it. Like that, that works really, really well with me. I really, really like that. Some of you may have experienced that with me in the past where um, if you straight up tell me something, maybe I'll say, not in this moment, or can we talk about this later, right? That's me saying, that's me saying, I don't have a bandwidth for it right now. And this is a boundary I'd like to set. I feel like that's a powerful thing that we will delve in a bit more because I am working on trying to find a communicator who's also a swing dancer who can give us, all of us, myself included, the proper tools to set boundaries as well as be better communicators in the swing dance scene. I feel like that would make things so great, especially for things such as like partnerships or maybe like competitions or if you're upset about level placement or something having the tools to be able to express how you feel, I think is going to be a really powerful thing. Um, Jazby was, we're talking about that. Chris was talking about how he interacted with his partner and how they approached it differently and the self-awareness there. Um, so I think that's important. Ah, well, this was a heavy one. If you made it to the end of this podcast um, and if you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and comment down below. You are not alone. You are not alone if you made it to the end of the podcast. 
And uh, I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Hopefully it was uh, not as... (laughs) not as emotional or as crazy as I thought it would be. And hopefully you gleaned something from it. Um, This may have like stepped a little bit away from the swing dancing piece, but I think that this will inform a lot of the other podcasts moving forward, specifically the one about effective communication, the finances of Lindy Hop and how it affects um, people and their access to it, as well as just the community and feeling like you have a support you have people that you can lean on and that they don't have to just be your dance friends they can become your sister your brother or your chosen family yeah that's what i think if you stay to the end of the podcast i really do appreciate it um you can find all the links to the stuff including the ship program down below and I will see you all next week because the next couple of weeks is going to be really fun. We have uh, Tydrick Hill as well as Jeremy Ott coming up this month and as well as a smattering of other people I'm working on. So this will probably be the deepest one, one of the deeper episodes, but the next ones are going to be super fun. I promise. Thank you all so much for your ears and I will see you all later. Bye. Thank you for listening. The music you are currently hearing is called Dances of the Night by Papa D. You can find all its links down below. Till next time. Don't lose hope trying to stand tall Trying to give the dance of yours the best that you got cause Every time that they hear this sound That music gets the feet above the ground Time just seems to stop in it You gotta move, move, move. Got to, got to, got to be a dancer.